good to worship God. It's good to come into his presence. And it's good to hear from God. I wonder how you respond to the word control. I'm going to give you a couple of phrases and I want everybody to vote whether you think it's a good thing or a negative thing. The first thing is if I said to you, I'm out of control, how many people think that's a good thing? Yeah. How many people think if you, I'm out of control, that's a good phrase? Yeah, they're all good Christians here, you know. <laughs> John's the only one who's honest here. <laughs> Doesn't sound good to be out of control. Okay, second, if I said I'm a control freak, who thinks that's positive? Negative? So you're all wondering, oh dear, where's Stephen going with this? Hmm. And if I said to you, I'm in control of my life, who thinks that's positive? Yeah, you think, right. Some are thinking, well, I kind of do, but I think you're going to tell me it's not a good thing. Um, actually, typically, in our culture, in our society, being in control is seen as a good thing. You know, I'm in control of my life. Pe- people do tend to think that's a good thing. And if you say, I just feel totally out of control, people say, that's, that's not good, is it? It's not good to feel completely out of control. And, uh, oh, yeah, I better turn this, there we are. Being in control, uh, being out of control is definitely seen as a negative thing. And there's a sort of theory that to fight chaos in life, we like to be in control. And there is plenty of chaos in our lives, isn't there? Plenty of chaos in the world. And we like to try and, if we can be in control at least of some things in our life, that fights the chaos that seems to be around us. We can say, I can do this, I'm in control of that, that, that's fine, I've got that bit under control. We tend to think that's quite a good thing. And uh, I think if we're really, really honest with ourselves, really honest, to be in control, we think that's, that's, that's quite a good thing, really. But it's also true and I think uh, it's come out here, not to admit that we like to be in control. We don't want to admit it. We like to say, no, 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 no. Certainly not as good Christians. We say, no, no, we don't want to think like that. But I think, I think actually somewhere in our hearts, somewhere in our lives, we think, yeah, I'd like to be in control. And we can think of it as controlling failure uh, of controlling the chaos in our life. We, we think of being in control because we're afraid of failure, so we like to control those parts of our life. We may control because we're afraid of intimacy even. We try to get other people to love us. We try to control or we like to be in control because that makes us feel powerful. And there may be many other reasons why we like to be in control. What's the point here? Well, control replaces something. Because control replaces faith. They actually can't coexist, they're separate. Let's just make this real. When it comes to our friendships, do we, in a way, try to control our friendships and and who who we're friends with? Do we have faith to let God control even our friendships, to to be leading us and guiding us? And and, uh, yes, in that sense, controlling our friendships. Will we let God be in control of even our friendships. If we're single, 
possibly dating? Do we, are we trying to control and ma- manipulate people so that they see us as people that we're not? Or we, are we prepared to be who God has created us to be with somebody that we're dating and let God work things through? In our marriage, do we try to change our husband or our wife to make, our, make them into the person we would like them to be? Or are we, are we going to let God control so that they become the person God wants them to be and our marriage becomes the marriage God wants it to be. And what about our children? Do we control them because maybe we're afraid they'll reflect poorly on us? I'm not talking about discipline here, but are we trying to make our children into little versions of ourselves? Or do we trust that in God's hands he sees them as the original masterpiece and he's in charge of them, and he will make them into the person he wants them to be. And then we could think about our career, or work, or school. Do we try to control that? Or do we have faith that we do the best possible, and live a life of integrity, work hard, and God will take care of the rest? Even our health, do we try to control that as much as we possibly can? Or do we allow God, with our health, to be in control? And what about our finances? Are we letting God control what happens with our money? And I can speak from personal experience that when I was made redundant a couple of years ago, and suddenly, of course, lost less money was coming in. It was a scary time. And I wish I could say to you, I trusted God fully with our finances at that time, but I worried. I thought, well, what are we going to do now? Do we trust God, even in that? Here's what is, tends to be true in our lives. We don't set out to el- eliminate God from our lives, but in the pursuit to feel okay and to feel better, it's always easier to try and control these things than to let God be God in our lives. It's wanting a quick fix, wanting things to be better. It's easier to try and control than it is to have faith. The problem is when we try to control all of these things in our lives or anything in our lives, we actually limit God. We lose perspective of God's power and his presence and his position. You see, when God actually controls our lives, if he's driving our life and he's in the front seat and we're next to him, he doesn't always take us where we would like to go, but we go on an adventure in life with God that is deeper, richer than we could have ever dreamed if we were trying to control and drive. God may not always take us where we would go, but it will certainly be an adventure when we allow God to control. What I want to do this morning is to show us how Jesus responded to faith and even lack of faith. And we're talking about an amazing person, Jesus. And we can talk about Jesus being amazing, the things he did, the miracles and the crowds that gathered around that wanted to hear him. They were amazed at his teachings, they were amazed at his miracles and on and on and on. But actually it says in the Bible that Jesus was amazed by a couple of things, two things. In Mark chapter 6 verse 1 it says, Jesus left that part of the country, returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. They asked, where did he get all the wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? 
So Jesus has gone back to Nazareth, his hometown, the place where he's grown up. Everybody there knew who Jesus was. They'd known him you know, from a nipper. Really small. They'd seen him running around. They'd seen him grow up, seen him as a teenager. They'd seen him learn the trade of carpentry. You know, for 30 years, they'd seen Jesus grown up, or around 30 years. We don't know exactly how long. And people knew him. But now he's come back and he's in the synagogue teaching. And the people have heard what he said. They've heard what he's been doing as he's travelled around. So he's a, he's a well-known figure here. The pe- and these people know him the best. They're astonished at his teaching. They're amazed at it. But it doesn't lead to faith. In fact, it led to doubt. In fact, they said, he's just the carpenter and the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Basically, he said, who does Jesus think he is? We've known him, and he's trying to teach us and tell us how to live life. This is just ridiculous. Who is he that everybody is so amazed at him? Mark uses the word offended. It's a strong word. It means they were angered, shocked, revolted at what he had said. And in verse 6, it says this, and he, that's Jesus, was amazed at their unbelief. One of the two things that amazed Jesus was lack of faith, lack of belief, no faith. In Matthew 8, different story. It says, when Jesus arrived at Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralysed and racked with pain. This soldier is a centurion, a high-ranking official. He had people reporting to him. Yes, he wasn't top, he reported to people, but he's, he's a pretty powerful guy. And, of course, in those days, he was a, would have been hated. The Jewish people have hated him. He's part of an occupying force. But there was something different about this Roman centurion. And you know there's something different because he came and pled for his servant, his slave. Why? I mean, if this servant were to die, well, so what, really? I mean, he could go out and buy another one. To a penny, really, not, not, not so bad. And yet, he pleads with him. Many, many people, you know, slaves, servants, were no better than animals in the eyes of people. So there's something different about this guy. And he actually doesn't come and say, can you hear him? He just says to Jesus, my young servant lies in bed paralysed and racked with pain. And Jesus says, I'll come, I'll come and I'll heal him. And the officer says this, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come. If I say to my slave, do this or that, they do it. So here's a man who knows about control. His whole life is about control from above and to those below him. He controls situations. He controls, he's in control of decisions. But now he's out of control. He cannot do anything for this servant who he obviously loves. As a Roman leader, he may well have gone to other people but Jesus. But he's heard enough about Jesus 
that he goes to Jesus. Now look what happens in verse 10. When Jesus heard what the Roman centurion had, what did he say? What does it say? He was amazed. And turning to the crowd, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all the land of Israel. So Jesus, in the first story, is amazed at lack of faith, lack of belief. In this story, he's amazed at where the faith is coming from. One story with no faith, another with amazing faith. And Jesus isn't impressed by the Roman soldier. He's control. He's not um, impressed by the fact that he's a soldier. He is impressed and amazed at his faith. And Jesus always responds to faith. We, we read elsewhere, your faith has made you well, your faith has saved you. Because of your faith it will be granted. Your faith has healed you. These two stories, they're juxtaposed totally opposite. On one side we've got those who knew Jesus well. They were familiar with him. But that in a way caused faithlessness. Then we've got the other side. A man who's paid to be in control. A man who's all about control who feels out of control. But he has faith in Jesus and that faith is on him. So what does that really mean? Well it means faith is trusting God with control. He's saying to God, I'm out of control. I cannot control these things in my life. And how does that impact us today if we have faith in our relationships? What's it going to look like tomorrow in the workplace, at home, at school? And I reckon that any time we talk about faith, and talk about faith now, there will be people here worrying because they say, yeah, but my faith isn't that big. The thing that really pleases God is faith. And it doesn't have to be big faith. Jesus elsewhere says, you know, you only need faith as small as a mustard seed and you can tell this mountain to go and throw itself in the sea and it will be done for you. It's not the size of faith that counts. It's the size of the God we put our trust in that counts. And the thing that really pleases God is faith. The thing about the Roman soldier is he didn't have an amazing legacy of faith going back years and years and years. He's a Roman soldier, probably not a spiritual giant. He's not been following Jesus for 40 years, but what he did have was a simple, sincere, almost desperate type of faith. Lord, he's sick. Just say the word and he'll be healed. That's the type of faith that pleases God. Hebrews 11 says, you see, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that there is a God and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. And it's not the size of your faith. It's the size of God that you put your faith in. And life would be very different if we had faith in every area of our life. And the disciples, they came to Jesus and said, we need more faith. Tell us how to get it. Jesus basically says, you develop your faith. It doesn't happen overnight. It's like a muscle. It has to be developed. You know, if I was to um, say I want to run a marathon, run the London Marathon next year, I would have to start basically tomorrow, but I wouldn't start by going out and running 26 miles tomorrow. I'd go out and I'd start perhaps with a mile or two, perhaps a bit less even. 
maybe a bit more, but it wouldn't be 26 miles. It would be a mile or two, and then I'd build up so that hopefully by the time the London Marathon comes round next April, I'd be able to run the 26 miles. may not be able to run it quickly, but I might be able to run it. And that's how faith is developed. We start with the small little steps of faith. Just little. We just keep doing that over and over and over until our faith is growing all the time. So let's just look at some small steps before we close. These are actually statements of Jesus. One might be to start by acknowledging him. That Hebrew says, the passage in Hebrew says, faith, um, we must believe there is a God. Well, perhaps you need to start just there. The baby step of faith is that we begin to acknowledge that there is a God. And then you move on to that where Jesus says, follow me. Jesus just went up to people and said, follow me. I'm amazed actually because when you read it, it goes, follow me, and they all leave their nets, their fishing nets, and they go and follow him. But there's a step that you need to take to start following Jesus. And maybe you have been following your own way. Maybe you've been to church lots and lots and lots, but you're still following your own way. There are two ways to live. We can either live life our way or we can live God's way, trusting in him, putting our faith in him. Jesus says, you know, you want life? You want a really great life? The better than life than you've ever dreamed of? Well, follow my way. Follow me. As I said earlier, when God's in control, he may not take you the way you want to go or the way you even dreamed of going, but he will take you the best way. Maybe that's a step of faith you need to take. Let's say, I'm just going to follow Jesus. And then another step is simply get to know him. How do we do that? Well, we start by getting to know Jesus by reading the Bible, reading the Gospel passage, or the Gospels, one of the Gospels. Because Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. Look at what he said, look at what he did. And we put our faith in the character of God that says, and God promises when we start to follow him, he'll be with us. And the Roman soldier, what did he do? He didn't know everything. He didn't understand what was going on, but as much as he understood, he came to Jesus and said, yeah, basically, look, my, my servant is ill. What are you going to do about it? And Jesus healed him. He didn't know everything. He didn't have this great legacy of faith, but he just started to get to know that God, when we put our faith in him, will lead us and guide us. So read one of the Gospels. See what Jesus said. See what he did. And then we can watch Jesus. Watch how God works in the world. See what he's doing in the world. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law uh, come and speak, or just tell what they're doing, and they live in Lebanon. And in the news, when you hear about Lebanon and Syria, you can think everything is bleak. And okay, not everything is great, but they were talking about what God is doing in that part of the world, in the church, how people are turning to Christ refugees are coming to Christ. It's not all bad. God is at work. Even in the bleakest of situations. So watch what God is doing. And then obey him. Even when we don't feel like it, even when we think what God is saying, we think, why, why? We obey what God says. Because God says it. 
So let me close by asking this question. What does your life look like if you just handed it all over to God and said, look, I want you to be in control. What would my life look like if I did that completely in every area of our lives? Not just once a week, but in all areas. Sometimes I think God in all his glorious faithfulness, he says, look, I can't do anything until you let go. Until you just let me. That God can take us and he can fix things, he can put things right. But even if he doesn't put things right, that he will say, look, this is good for, this is the best way Come follow me. Let me take you by the hand and come with me and you'll have the best life possible. Let's pray.